Thank you very much for having me, and thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you to the, the food group. Um, I explained when, um, um, when Sally and Tanya approached me um, that I don't know much about food, and I don't know much about the digital, um, I know a little bit about activism, um, and uh, they nonetheless said, no, 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 you must come and talk. Blame any mismatch uh, on them, please. Um, I uh, wanted to just run through some parts of the argument which were developed in the work on mundane governance. And, um, and the question really is, can that way of looking at um, the way in which stuff organises lives be helpful to understanding what goes on in food and the way food organises lives or is relevant for lives or, or whatever. And um, what, I, what I do here is a very um, SDS-inflected uh, perspective, science technology studies-inflected, um, uh, uh, where crucially what's really important is um, the nature of the object at the centre of all the discussions. Um, so uh, it's, this is about, I uh, want uh, again and again to ask the question, what is the stuff that people are talking about? What is this food product? And how is that food product understood in that deep framed, represented, and so on and so forth? Um, but let me, let me start with uh, some background to the um, uh, mundane governance. I mean, what we noticed over quite a few years now was the proliferation of a number of narratives and stories about um, uh, outrageous things that were going on in relation to very ordinary objects, very mundane things, everyday technologies. So this emergence of rules and categories for recycling, it was no, it's no longer permissible just to put the black bag at the top of the garden, just dump it out. You have now to be an expert in all the categories of recycling and put them in different containers and so on. Um, the emergence of fines for incorrect recycling um, and, and it, these are all points of sort of contention and outrage in the popular press. The discovery of um, uh, microchips in newly issued uh, plastic wheelie bins and, and the tabloids had a field day talking about the, um, the emergence of bin brother um, because you were going to be surveyed for how much stuff you put in your, in your bin. Um, the outrage at speed cameras making cash for the police or for the government or for the council. Um, the emergence of courses for re-educating speeding drivers. Uh, during the course of this very long project, I managed to get caught speeding three times um, and was allowed to go on the course twice. Um, and the emergence of airport security measures um, took into the liquids rules, which have become um, you know, very well, much talked about and infamous and, and, and so on. So um, that, that's the sort of background to this stuff. And if you look at those narratives uh, in, in, a, in a rather more sort of distanced, uh, a careful way, what you find is that talk about the mundane is pervasive and omnipresent, and it is everywhere. So um, often social scientists like to concentrate on the big stuff, you know, the global and societal um, big interactions and things like that. But if you, um, you know, go into the, uh, the media, especially local press, local media and so on, you find it's every stuff worrying about the bins and the speed cameras and so on. It's significant and consequential. People are extremely upset about 
bad things being done with ordinary objects or ordinary objects ruling their lives in particular and so on. Um, my um, favourite example of, um, of this is um, this headline from the Daily Express's front page. On the day that the new Pope was announced, um, you see that this announcement is dwarfed by the headline, which is about some, some speed trap on a motorway which is raising loads of money. And I thought this was very nice, nicely iconic of the sort of um, juxtaposition of what people think you know, is, is important. I wonder how you go back on this. Yes, there you go. Um, the mundane becomes very moral, so people get extremely excited about um, we're not recycling enough, we should be recycling more, you should be recycling, kids are taught about recycling at schools and it's important and so on. Um, there's a lot of talk about the mundane in terms of incongruity and exoticism. Um, it's really interesting to sort of trawl through uh, YouTube video clips and you discover people um, have been on their holidays and they've taken little clips of street scenes in Hanoi and um, they don't have traffic lights and things work fine. Uh, and, so, and, and there's a sort of very interesting sort of folk anthropology built around these experiences of elsewhere in relation to mundane technologies. Um, irony and social political analysis, um, you know, the way we do it in England is just laughable. In Germany, they're fantastic. They've got the really organized and so on and so forth. And you can juxtapose, uh, juxtapose different ways of relating to the mundane and then do a kind of um, uh, analysis of, of the interests and the politics are related to. And the Schadenfreude at disruption, so that um, when, uh, for example, um, traffic lights stop working uh, and the, it is seen that the traffic flows smoothly, better than usual, people are very pleased that this instrument of regulation, this mundane instrument of control, um, is having the reverse effect than the one everyone thought it, thought it was. Okay, so, so there's some of the sort of um, um, issues and backgrounds. And in the study, um, we, we um, concentrated on three areas and um, wanted to look at regulation and control in relation to um, three areas. Recycling and waste is one of them. Um, traffic management, especially speed cameras and parking and traffic lights. And passenger movement and security in airports. Um, um, I wanted the subtitle of the book to be "Trash, Traffic, and Transit," <laughs> but this is, this is far too uh, far too um, pushy for the University Press. So um, we have to say something much more um, much more solid. Okay, and I suppose what I want to do in this talk is to run through some issues to do with mundane governance and ask the question. Does this way of thinking apply to food? Mm -hmm. Are there things that one can uh, pull out of this framework uh, which might be useful? And the things I'm thinking of here are, well, you know, food is a mundane object um, in the sense it is very ordinary and basic uh, and so on. Think of um, uh, Plato's levels of uh, the, the value of human activity, um, the eaters, the food, the, the food providers are way at the bottom and so on. It's pervasive, it's common, it's basic, it's widespread. Many, many behaviours are aligned in relation to food. Uh, we are anxious about um, how we eat, what we eat, who tells us what, who knows what's in the food, who tells us what should be in the food and isn't, and so on and so forth. And activities are then made to follow on grounds of the presumed character of the food. 
um, that it's good for you to take this, that it's bad for you to take that, and so on and so forth. And, and again, you know, as I started at the beginning, the presumed character of the food is absolutely crucial here. I want to know how what the food is, what the stuff is, emerges um, and is sustained. And accountability relations arise in relation to the accomplished ontological status of food. In other words, if the food is accomplished as being having a particular character, then certain people get to be responsible for that, other people get to be expected to re- relate to it in particular ways, and so on. So this, this, is, this is the question for the talk. Okay, and I wanted to sort of draw out of the study some instances um, of resistance, uh, contestation, activism, you know, there is some, but not an awful lot around mundane stuff. And I've, I've pulled out five examples which we'll go through. Um, these, um, well, I'll just go through. Okay. So, macontology, um, um, uh, these are examples which you will know, of course. Is obesity caused by fast foods? Well, this became an issue um, of a legal suit in 2002 where um, a group of people brought an action against McDonald's on the grounds that McDonald's products were causing uh, obesity and or diabetes in in children. And uh, the media response to this was, was, of course, fast foods, (laughs) propensity for obesity, and how absurd is this? Uh, in, 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 confronted with uh, McDonald's, you make a choice, and it's your responsibility whether or not you eat the damn burger. Uh, under this suit, is a, this suit is an attempt to reverse that relation of accountability and say it's the fault of McDonald's for providing the option of making a burger available. And um, the media respond, you know, it's only the lawyers who are getting fact, actually, and as a result of all these, uh, all these actions. This case in 2002, very interesting, um, succeeded on the basis of unreasonable danger. So it was held that the fast foods, McDonald's, did constitute an unreasonable danger. Um, it was also held that they did... Uh, Fail. They did. Uh, they are guilty of giving inadequate warnings that the burgers should be labelled. You know, warning: this burger may cause obesity. You know, and they were not. But they could not prove that those particular burgers made those particular children obese, and so the whole thing failed. An attempt to, in legal context, re-specify what the stuff is, what what actually it is. Later, a few years later, again an episode I'm sure some of you would be familiar with, um, Liebert brings a case against McDonald's about um, hot coffee. Uh, and she tried to sue McDonald's for serving hot coffee, which she spilt on her lap, um, I think on a, a, a drive through And um, again, the media response was, this is another example of a completely ridiculous, over-litigious society, where an individual refuses to accept responsibility. Coffee is meant to be hot. If you buy coffee, you might reasonably expect that it's going to be hot, and you take the risk in buying it that it is hot, and you deal with it appropriately. And what she's trying to say is, it is actually the providers of the coffee who should be accountable accountable for its heat. So, very nice uh, switch here. Um, And so, the lawyers argued that the coffee, not just hot, it's hotter than in other restaurants. 
it caused the most serious kind of third degree burn and that it was just one of a long series of similar burns which McDonald's uh, can be made accountable for. And $2.7 million was awarded for willful, reckless, or malicious conduct on the part of McDonald's. So what I think is so nice about the example is you see that the re-specification of the coffee forms a redistribution of accountability relations. Um, Making the coffee these things rather than just the coffee makes McDonald's responsible for it rather than the people who buy it and how they use it and what, what they do with it. If you like, the capacities, identities, expectations shift in relation to the shift from hot. And it's no longer hot. It's something like something, something like recklessly, knowably, indefensibly, as just the latest in a series of similar eventsably hot. It becomes a quite different kind of hot. So, you know, my, my, what's so interesting about it is that the re-specification of what the thing is, the coffee and its heat, it is now these, redistributes the accountability relations, redistributes who's responsible for what and so on. Okay, that's the first example. My second example is um, right up to the minute and just a few weeks old from the local uh, paper, the Oxford Mail. Um, uh, the outcry as a four-inch step leads to the end of blood donations. And the story here is that um, this four-inch step was deemed um, inappropriate to the conduct, the, 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 the conduct of blood donating. This is, this, is, this is from here. Potential blood donors were left baffled by the news that all donation sessions in their village have been cancelled over a health and safety risk in a four-inch step. NHS Blood and Transplant cancelled its session at Kennington Village Centre on October the 7th because of the problem posed to its staff by the step. Now the service has said it has no plans to hold any future sessions in the village and told people they will have to go to Abingdon or Oxford. And, and this, 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 is, this is classic, the way this is sort of laid out in the press. The health and safety for Rory comes after the Oxford Mail reported yesterday that lock keepers in Oxfordshire might be stopped from using fire extinguishers because they are not trained. Kennington Parish Council Chairman said, I know they have, wheeled, they have to wield things up there, but it's four inches. It seems silly that after 27 years it has become an issue. It hasn't grown in that time. <laughs> Kennington Village Centre Secretary Peter Biggs said he was annoyed because the blood service had not even discussed the decision with the managing committee. And here he is, being annoyed. And this is the caption from me. Annoyed. <laughs> Kennington Village Centre Secretary Peter Biggs with the four inch step. And I think, again, what's, what's interesting about this is that the whole kerfuffle revolves around the fact of the four inch step and that it is just what it is, a four-inch step. So I'm very interested in how you achieve the whatness of the four-inch step, such that you can then do political analysis around that factual character of the thing, which is an issue. Um, next example is speed camera <coughs> activism, and um, we looked at some speed cameras, or, or uh, as, a, as they're now known, of course, safety cameras. Um, safety cameras and discovered that um, 
there's a um, very large number were um, uh, vandalized, damaged, uh, destroyed, taken out, however you want to put it. Um, and um, even the even the websites, which you can find websites where you can uh, get instructions on how to destroy um, speed cameras. But even the websites that have these pictures have, have these, these things here. Destroying speed cameras is punishable by law. Pictures and images are used for illustration purposes only. All right, so it, it's, I mean, I see in there a really interesting attempt to distance oneself from uh, responsibility or accountability. You know, I'm, I'm putting these up, but I'm not encouraging you <laughs> to do the same. This is my... Right, so this one is even putting a visual up, you're trying to distance yourself from any implication. And I, I wanted to show you this. Yeah, there's Burnable's cutting There's what? Burnable's cutting Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it needs encouragement, but it does get them. <laughs> Okay, I think we get. I think we get. Wow. Okay. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I just think that's a fantastic video, and um, you know, forget about digital. I mean, people often say that digital activism is, yeah. You know, 30,000 likes, you can tell your MP that you know, 50,000 people have liked your protest page, but where are the eggs and tomatoes? <laughs> and um, it seems to me this is a very nice sort of reminder of the materiality involved in some forms of activism. But of course it's staged and it's, it's presented digitally and, it, and, and, and it, it's, it, it's viewed uh, by very many people and it's staged in lots of very interesting ways. So there's somebody there taking the video. And, uh, and these guys are, you know, in, in their helmets, and you can't see their faces. And the video doesn't take the, the number plate of the of the motorbike. And you see this happening with cars passing in different directions. All sorts of things going on in there, in, in in this particular sort of staging or public presentation of an instance of activism. Um, so I'm interested, you know, who are the entities here? How are they being enacted and performed? Uh, and, and, and what are the facts which are meant to be the, 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 the basis of this? Um, talk about mundane terror and liquids rules. Um, you'll recall that in 2006, um, the EU uh, introduced liquids rules for going through um, airports. And at that point, one was issued with a leaflet like this um, as you went through um, to help you decide what you could and could not um, take, take into uh, in, in, in through um, security, and uh, you know, there's some interesting questions here about who is it assumed that's going to read and learn these detailed instructions about how to relate to the liquids that you have, um, and the typology of the liquids. If you understand it, that enacts you as a responsible traveller, and underspying, understanding and complying with the typology enacts the person um, who has nothing to hide, um, and. It, it's similar in recycling. There's a massive amount of um, detailed um, instructions and categories and topologies. And it's always deeply unclear to me um, who bothers or knows to read any of this stuff. In fact, if you go into detail with it, you'll find that um, um, the council will collect um, old shoes and they will not collect old shoes. 
Yeah, so there's even some interesting kind of inconsistencies um, in, in the detail there. Okay, and, and we did some work on some of the recycling centres and this immense proliferation of categories which tries to deal, and changes every week, tries to deal with, with all the typologies of the stuff. And in ter- terms of in terms of objects um, and ontologies, I mean, it's very interesting the things that uh, are, are prohibited from being, uh, you know, not allowed to be on, on, on aircraft and so on. Um, here's some objects which are have what I, I think of as kind of insecure ontology. So, unlike the four-inch step, which is produced as being just what it is in order to make sense of all the actions around it, with things like this, um, it's, it's, the key contains a knife. Or this image I love very much, we weren't allowed to put it in the book, but um, this is an image of, of somebody who's got onto an aircraft holding a knife. And he's a picture of himself on the aircraft with the knife. And all sorts of things then go on as you look at the photograph. I mean, for me, for example, you notice, um, not very good image here, but you notice his staring eyes. And the staring eyes become the eyes of somebody who's holding a forbidden object on an aircraft. So so the thing, the knife, is just a very small part of all the kind of resonances and reverberations that are going on. Take it a bit further, and you notice that he has a beard. What on earth is that about? But my noticing that he has a beard becomes part of the ways in which that photograph makes available all the resonances between what the thing is and the stuff around it. So how do we get a bit more um, sort of um, analytic grip on what's really going on in all these instances? Well, one, one thing that we've looked at in some detail is a particular um, episode which was, um, again, covered in the, in, in the tabloids where uh, a woman was fined £50 for using the, um, the wrong uh, bin bag. There she is. And rather like the guy with the four-inch step, um, you have a photograph of her stunned Lynette with her own bag and daft penalty notice. She used her own black sack and she was fined £50. Um, and, and you can imagine the photographer saying, no, come on, Lynette, look more stunned. It's <laughs> <laughs> part, part of it. Anyway, she's fined for £50 for using the wrong bin bag. And the um, narrative goes something like this. I'll read it out for those of you back. Barney council bosses have fined a woman £50 for putting her rubbish out in the wrong kind of bin bags. Lynette Vickers got into trouble after she ran out of council-issued sacks, so she put her trash in her own black sacks instead and left them out the night before collection day. But they were spotted by two overzealous wardens who ripped them open to find out who they belonged to, then hammered on Lynette's door. The unmarried mum of four was stunned when told she was being fined £50 for using the wrong bags and causing an an obstruction. Um, So um, that's the story. Now, what you can do quite nicely with this is you can go in detail through the text uh, very much inspired by Dorothy Smith's analyses of relations of ruling and so on. Um, and you can, work, you, you can see how the moral order is portrayed through a very interesting additive contrast structure which is organises the story and then appears all the way through. So the contrast is roughly between the evildoers who are the balmy council bosses and the innocent victims who are, who are entities like normal people Unmarried mum of four, and so on, and, and you can you can line up 
the you can line up the opposing, the contrasting um, entities like this. Um, and what happens in the text is that the Barmy normal contrast turns on apprehension of the object, which is a bin bag, and what counts as appropriate behaviour with and towards it. So the bin bag is recognised and responded to in one way by evildoers and other ways by innocent victims in the structure of this in the structure of this text. So that the mundaneity of the bin bag, and it's really important, is just the bin bag. The mundaneity of the bin bag, what every reasonable person knows about the nature and purpose of bin bags, reinforces the moral contrast between the barmies and the normals. What the object is, what it's for, what should be in it, what's inappropriate behaviour towards it, they are all tied to and exemplify the structure of the moral order. And I think that's really um, very nice. I and mean, it's not that the bin bag is something which is just given and just exists the way it is. The bin bag becomes what it is in its narrative organisation. And um, I think that for me, resonates with what very little I know about food. What the food, what the stuff is, becomes what it is. In and through, it's presented, performed, organisation. So, how are entities politically constituted? How can a bin bag be wrong? How can a bin bag be wrong? They make it wrong. The discursive organisation makes possible the relations of governance. The organisation of the text provides the moral order, and it makes available a cast of characters and assigns attributes to each and depicts networks of rights and responsibilities. And this is very important, so that it's not just a story weaved around given acceptable curious it's not acceptable curious behaviours in relation to a given object. The object becomes the thing around which the behaviours are weaved, the very character of the object. The ontology of the bin bag is constituted in and through the organisation of the text. And this is what Smith calls um, the relations of ruling. The relations of ruling are enacted and performed in and through um, the organisation of the text. Okay, so um, that's pretty much what I, what I, what I just wanted to point out today. Um, what I said is that relations of accountability and governance are organised around ordinary, everyday, pervasive objects and technologies. And um, that's what we're trying to do with. And the accomplished ontology of those entities is entangled with what counts as an appropriate response to them. Um, you know, to make the story about the four-inch step, you have to achieve its ordinariness, that it is just a four-inch step. And then you can do things about um, what, what's an appropriate response to it. Mundane, then, is not just ordinary and everyday, common, boring, routine. It's not, not just those things. It's much more, much more interestingly, it, it's a given. It's what in the world it is. Mundane, for you classical scholars, of course, from Mundus. It's that which is just that in the world. And it seems to me that um, these governance relations really importantly depend on being able to achieve that the thing is just that that it is in the, in the, in the world. Um, if you can accomplish the mundaneity, then that facilitates political analysis. Because if you can achieve that the thing is just an ordinary bin bag, 
then certain behaviours towards it are inappropriate or motivated or politically informed and so on. But it depends first of all on your being able to say that the thing is what it is. And so my question is the one I started with, is this helpful at all? Can we think of stuff and food as being non-negative? Okay. Thank you.